Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This is the John Oakley Show podcast. Diamond, and I know we're going through a rough time right now, but I love you, and I think maybe if we sing together, well, we'll just feel a little bit better. Give it a try, okay? Where it began. Can't begin to knowing, but then I know it's growing strong. Wasn't the spring, and spring became the summer. Who'd have believed you'd come along? Touch me, I won't touch you, sweet Caroline. Good times never seem so good. All right, just thought I'd play that to lift your spirits. Neil Diamond reworked his classic. That the Boston Red Sox fans know full well. That's a seventh inning stretch song. Uh, other people have sort of culturally appropriated but uh, sweet caroline hands washing hands reaching out don't touch me <laughs> i won't touch you i like it uh but there you go that's the diamond man doing a mitzvah as they say uh on matters of uh dealing with legalities though i'm just wondering you know we've run through the list of things that are considered essential and non-essential our good friend joe newberger global news radio's legal expert with newberger and partners has joined us on the line this afternoon to talk legalities joe how are you holding up are you essential or non-essential uh i think we're kind of essential um you know just sort of coping with it it's it's a very strange combination that we're facing but uh we're 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 working unfortunately because we have no choice all right uh because i went through the list of uh the summary of what is considered to be essential i didn't see uh lawyers or legal practices or anything like that well we're we're exempted from the uh the new measures put in provincially and and what's happened now is the courts have shut down almost completely saving except for certain emergency matters so trials which are ongoing, like the murder case which just finished, or people who are arrested and appearing for bails, and they're trying to be dealt with remotely. But um, there are still emergency matters that have to be dealt with. And what the public may not be fully aware of is that with the courts closing, everything that was set for a trial or resolution has all been adjourned now or will be adjourned as they come up. And it's going to create tremendous pressure on the criminal justice system going forward. And those of us who are in criminal practice right now, we're not attending court, so we're not really earning a living right now. But what we have to do is try and keep track of what's going on in order to ensure these cases remain on track. And, you know, we defend our clients' rights, but also we've got to look at the integrity of the system as well. So it's a very odd circumstance right now because – it's very challenging for all the participants in the criminal justice system. 
What happens if a trial was in progress and you've got a jury and uh, what are they told to go home and uh, reconvene later? Or does this sort of scotch the jury pool? It's a great question. So um, those that were ongoing uh, completed. And then there was a very brave decision done by uh, Justice Morowitz, which there was a lot of participants, the Criminal Lawyers Association, John Struthers involved, and many other uh, stakeholders where they decided to shut down all jury trials. And then after that was to shut down the Superior Court. So if it's not an ongoing trial of some significance right now, then it's come to a halt. And so all jury trials that were set to commence, uh, let's say from mid-March to the end of May, are all going to be automatically adjourned as is all trials in the lower court. So you can just imagine, if we just think about this for a moment, once all that goes, and and let's assume we get back up and running in June, there are thousands and thousands of cases that have to be rescheduled now. So it's going to be a massive undertaking to get these rescheduled and to try and and deal with all these cases. Yeah, because, I mean, you've got this uh, law, I guess, uh, is it Jordan or glad you, I'm not sure, but timely trial guaranteed if you don't get one. Basically, it's tossed, isn't it? Well, in a normal course, yeah, the Jordan decision, you're quite right. In the normal course, it would be. But this is sort of one of those unforeseen acts of, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it, act of God or whatever, where, you know, the Jordan timelines will not apply. But but leaving aside the Jordan timelines, you can imagine where evidence, um, you know, a person's memory and perception are very uh, important to the prosecution case. And a case now that would have been heard in, let's say, April will go over for a year or a year and a half because of scheduling issues, how that impacts the quality of the evidence and how you have to deal with it from a justice standpoint. And then just just moving the numbers, just dealing with the numbers that are in the system now with the stretch on the resources, it's going to be a tremendous undertaking when, uh, you know, we get back to some level of normalcy. And I'm not sure if that's going to be June, July, or August, or maybe even in the fall. We're just not sure. Because we already had a backlog to the court system and uh, not a requisite number of judges, I guess, in the Superior Court, eh? Absolutely correct. We've got still issues with respect to shortage of judges, shortage of infrastructure, and that's going to further compound the situation because the government's not geared up at this time to dealing with appointments. And so it's, it's going to compound the issue even more. So... Um, you know, there's a lot of people who are still working very hard from the Crown side and from the judicial resource side, as well as the defense lawyers, just trying to keep track of everything and deal with the emergencies that are in place right now. But once uh, we try and get back on some track of normalcy, the pressure that will be on the justice system will be absolutely tremendous. You know, there's also the issue, and I guess this is a tertiary one, but uh Prisoners are being paroled to get them out of prisons or jails so that, you know, they're not susceptible to spreading the contagion. Don't know how you feel about that. I mean, uh, when, you know, the justice system works to put them behind bars and suddenly they're furloughed. uh, I'm just wondering if that's demoralizing to some. Yeah, I mean, you know, you raise another good point. So um, you've got a number of factors. So I think police services, uh, for example, are under a tremendous amount of pressure now. You're not going to see the numbers of arrests or investigations simply because there are other things in the priority list. Those that are arrested and you don't have extreme circumstances of risk or violence are going to receive bail. And those that are in the jail system now and up for parole, uh, if otherwise they do not pose really a, a significant risk to the community, they got to get out of the jails because once that virus runs rampant in a detention center or a correctional facility, you can imagine 
the uh, health risks that will be at play, not just simply for the inmates, but for the people who work there as well. And so you've got to manage this risk in, in all sorts of levels. And people in the public may go, well, you know, somebody who's in custody, they deserve to be there. But as a civil society, we have to care about everybody's health, whether you're in custody or not, and also look at the long-term implications because there are people who work in the jails as well and go home to their families. So there's all sorts of levels of, of concern here. And you're right, people are going to be moved out of the system right now simply because of the health risks. Again, with Joe Newberger, Global News Radio's legal expert, let me ask you finally on the story that uh, you know many people have followed closely, and I know we've talked to you uh, about this in the past. That was the Tess Ritchie murder trial, uh, which I guess uh, concludes formally tomorrow with the sentencing, but uh, he was found guilty of the first degree, and uh, I guess he was automatically sentenced to life in prison, no chance of parole for 25 years. One of the aspects of this case is intriguing to me, uh, where the jury never got to see the evidence from his cell phone, where apparently uh, he had violent images of uh, choking and and things like that, uh, forcing violent sex, uh, which, by the way, uh, seems like it was very central to this whole case because the guy had a certain propensity for that. uh, But that wasn't admissible as evidence. Why not? Well, you just hit it right on the nose. So the courts for a long time, and, and we have as a rule of evidence that You want to avoid um, evidence going in that leads to propensity reasoning. So just because somebody may necessarily enjoy that type of, let's say, pornography or that type of uh, sexual contact does not necessarily mean that they committed the crime. So it could unduly prejudice a jury and lead, in some cases, to a wrongful conviction. So that evidence has to be excluded because it's not as probative as it should be, and it's far more prejudicial. And you can see in a case like this, the jury carefully went over the evidence. There was a fair amount for them to review. There were significant issues with respect to credibility, and there were a lot of uh, circumstantial evidence that pointed to guilt. So without the jury having this uh, source of evidence that one might seem in hindsight to be really relevant, the jury still arrived at, at a conclusion of guilt without it. So I think we have to be very important to exclude evidence that could send the jury down the wrong path and lead to an appeal. Um, and we want to make sure convictions are on really admissible, cogent evidence as opposed to that which may inflame a jury or lead them down the path of uh, propensity reasoning. All right. But if that came up as a bone of contention, uh, would the defense then have uh, objected to it and the judge sustained, as we see on TV, or the judge just ruled it inadmissible because it would probably have been brought up as a point uh, without the jury present, correct? Correct. So that probably was dealt with by way of a pretrial motion. If the Crown wanted to lead that evidence, the ju- the defense would object to it. A motion would be heard in front of the judge, and then it would be ruled inadmissible. And in this case, that was the right decision. All right. Uh, well, the decision was uh, they found him guilty of first degree. And uh, yeah, that's right. we'll see what transpires going forward. Joe, it's always a pleasure to talk. I wish it were in better times and circumstances, but stay healthy, stay safe, and uh, stay away from your clients as much as you can. (laughs) Thank you, John. You be well as well, and take care of your family and everybody around you. Be well. Well noted. Thank you for it. Joe Newberger, Global News Radio's legal expert with Newberger and Partners. In a moment, Rocco Rossi's going to check in, friend of the Oakley Show, the CEO of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. Obviously, uh, when you've got 60,000 businesses in the province that you represent on, uh, there are going to be a lot of people clamoring for maybe getting back to work sooner rather than later. Uh... Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. 
be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio. 